Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my home office. We don't have a name for it yet. I'm, uh, I'm probably just going to call it something obnoxious, like the castle or something like that. Uh, but we are in the northeast section now of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, Mike, the sound guy, is fixing this remotely. He is not here. The studio is closed. Uh, as you can probably imagine, times have changed pretty dramatically from the last time we did a pod. Our, uh, our last episode was the last week in February, first week in March. And a few days after that, we received a notice that the court system was going to shut down. Uh, And then a few days after that, the entire state shut down. And then a few days after that, the original shutdown that was extended to April got pushed out to May 30th. And things have just progressively gone crazy from there. Um, Coronavirus, of course, taking over everyone's life. I don't need to tell you the details about that. You can imagine. Uh, But it has been interesting trying to adjust. So you might hear a slight echo here. The uh, The home office is not furnished. We are working on getting sound panels, uh, but the ones that Mike told me to get are stupidly expensive. So some folks did donate to my, uh, my birthday fundraiser to get sound panels. So they're coming. They're just not here yet. And given the way that shipping has gone with uh, all of this, I don't know when they're going to be here. Um, so we're trying to get that fixed. So please bear with us as you deal with the uh, slight echo on the pod. Uh, a few podcast notes. We do have a Law 140 today, but it is going to be a separate episode because I suspect that it's going to be a common topic in the weeks ahead covering the powers of politicians Uh, to close things down in a pandemic. What role does the federal government have? What role do state and local governments have? What can they do without violating the Constitution? And the answers might surprise you. So what I've done is once this episode ends, uh, we're going to have a completely separate episode drop that will have the Law 140 section of it, and that is it, to make it easier for you to share it, easier for people to listen to without having to sit through all of the criminal justice fuckery that is coming. Uh, So just kind of be aware of that one. Other personal notes. Uh, Aside from the birthday fundraiser for sound panels, we did a fundraiser for the uh, Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina. Uh, We raised $9,867.54 for them. Most of you donated to that, so I thank you. Uh, Stuff is wild out here. I mean, it's wild. We've had shortages for weeks now on toilet paper and paper towels and ground beef and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we're relatively privileged because, of course, I'm a lawyer and my future spouse is a doctor. And I'm also a habitual, like, overstocker because, you know, of course, I was homeless once upon a time. So I always buy more than what we need because I'm always terrified that I'm going to run out of it. So it's like, as far as toilet paper goes, we were already set before any of the shortages happened. Uh, But it's getting to the point where the shortages have continued for so long that even I'm starting to get a little bit nervous, just a smidge. Um, So I can only imagine what it's like for people who don't have that stability, who have lost their jobs as part of these closures. Uh, A number of my clients have shut down because they are considered basically non-essential. You know, I I represent a doctor's group, for example, that does, um, it's a general practice, so they do a little bit of everything, but a lot of it is elective care, checkups and things like that. And basically what they were encouraged to do is that unless you have a body part falling off, uh, continue all that stuff out until June. Well, by the time June gets here, I mean, these folks have money to cover payroll for two weeks and cover non-payroll expenses for two weeks after that. 
they don't have 60 days of money just lying around. Most businesses don't. So they are shutting down entirely. So if you've got doctors that are getting laid off, you can imagine what it's like for you know people doing construction or people working retail or people doing food service. Uh, it is just a an economic nightmare as we're dealing with this acute public health challenge. Uh, I'm not sure where we're at on the death toll, but it's pretty grim and it's slated to go uh, much higher this coming week. We are nearing the peak, I think they said, of the pandemic. Uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday, so you'll get it Thursday, and then you'll have the Law and Forty also Thursday, and then we'll have another episode on Friday. Um, but just kind of, you know, I don't know. It, it's just we're in really weird fucking times. I'll put it that way. So thank you for those of you who donated to that food bank fundraiser. That was the point of that little missive. Uh, providing some help, some light in the darkness is much appreciated. Uh, we are still doing the game nights, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, roughly 9 o'clock. Normal start time is 9.30, but I've bumped it back to 9 since... Uh, oh, I forgot to tell you, my office is physically closed down, so I'm working from home also. Uh, still representing clients, still dealing with civil cases because those things continue even when you don't have access to the courts. Um, but trying to do that without my office that I've been in for eight years uh, is a bit of a challenge. So we've started doing those at 9 o'clock, these game nights. Everyone is welcome to join us. We play a lot of uh, Jackbox trivia games, stuff like that. And then also this, uh, we call it Fireside Lawyers. It's basically a live stream of myself and three of my lawyer buddies. We are all in the same building, or we were prior to uh, the lockdown. That is continuing as well. That is on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 1130. Uh, we have been off this week because we suspect the spouses of one of the lawyers has uh, COVID-19. Uh, she got very sick, took a flu test. The flu test was negative. So she is considered presumed positive until that test comes back, the coronavirus test. Um, but all of us are basically out of the office working from home, trying to do what we can remotely to uh, keep things running. So it's crazy times. We all get through it. Some of us will be worse for wear than others. Hopefully those of us that are making it can help lift up those who don't, uh, and we'll all get through it together. But we're all kind of hoping that those in the medical industry can come up with effective treatment, vaccination, whatever else we need uh, to get through this, because of course the politicians don't know what the fuck they're doing. So anyhow, let's get into the criminal justice fuckery, because despite the quarantine, this... Uh, Still got plenty of criminal justice fuckery stories. They abound. But before we get into that, of course, if you have not already done so, please follow us on Twitter. The Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. -L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on the website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And you can also join our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Fisk. It's patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Don't have much content on the Patreon here lately. I need to fix that. Uh, it will be coming, I promise. So don't feel rushed to go join the Patreon if you've not already done so. For now, just make sure you follow us on Twitter. Uh, Going to skip the politics stuff. Mike had put in an entry here on our outline that says, How fucked are we? I mean, Wow. Um, we're pretty fucked. I mean, it's that's the reality of it. And y'all probably see this in your everyday lives. So there's no point in me belaboring how fucked we are. Um, so, yeah, I don't have anything on politics. Let's go ahead and get into the criminal justice news. Out of the court stuff, uh, the Supreme Court decided to ratify its continued assault on the Fourth Amendment 
and I'm going to give you the uh, the link to the opinion so you can read it yourself, but I'm also mostly just going to quote from the story. From the story, it says, quote, The Supreme Court on Monday ruled that a Kansas police officer acted lawfully when he stopped a car whose owner's license was suspended before confirming it was, in fact, the owner behind the wheel. In an eight-to-one opinion, the justices said the officer's assumption that the owner was driving was reasonable, given the officer had no reason to think the vehicle was being operated by someone else. Subquote, we hold that when the officer lacks information negating an inference that the owner is the driver of the vehicle, the stop is reasonable. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote for the majority in a case that pitted road safety against driver's privacy rights. The ruling was a defeat for defendant Charles Glover, who had argued the traffic stop violated the Constitution's ban on unreasonable search and seizure and could encourage similar police stops across the country, even in cases where someone other than the car's owner is driving. But the majority said that traffic stops carried out after a license plate check reveals that an owner has a revoked license, as happened in Glover's case, are reasonable, even if the driver's identity is not confirmed in advance. So, quote, the fact that the registered owner of a vehicle is not always the driver of the vehicle does not negate the reasonableness of the deputy's inference, the majority wrote, referring to Deputy Mark Merrer, who stopped Glover's Chevrolet pickup truck in 2016. Now, I'm going to note this particular case isn't new. I mean, there's no you know, ideological changes here compared to what was already the case. Uh, reasonable suspicion, though, isn't a standard anywhere in the Constitution. It doesn't exist. So this is a court-created doctrine that everything has become reasonable nowadays, and we've just kind of dealt with it. Uh, so even though it doesn't tread any new ground, it doesn't erode the Fourth Amendment more than the Fourth Amendment was already eroded. It's just additional case law affirming that erosion, and it sucks. And the only justice to dissent was Sotomayor. I mean, even Ginsburg said that this was fine. I'm like, what the fuck? It's ridiculous. Um, but the fact that it was an eight-to-one decision highlights that there really is no hope of the court ever getting back to the constitutional text. They've just invented this reasonable suspicion standard and decided that it is fine, and here we are. Uh, out of the Sixth Circuit, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, so this is out of Cleveland, and the Sixth Circuit has given qualified immunity to a police officer who just picked a random homeowner to abuse, and the homeowner hadn't even done anything wrong. Uh, so the, the names here, I don't know how to pronounce them. They're all uh, what I would call odd for a guy living in North Carolina. Uh, you have a Chase House. So house is easy. He's the actual homeowner. I'm assuming it's pronounced house. Uh, and then you have an officer, Thomas Hodus or Hodus, and a, I'm going to call him Hodus just because it makes it easier, and a Brian Midoff, M-I-D-D-A-U-G-H. Um, so apologies if any of you have similar last names for me butchering those pronunciations. You have my, uh, my sympathies and apology. Uh, but here, this is gonna, I'm going to quote you directly from the court opinion because there was not a story on this one. Uh, it says, quote, Chase House sued several police officers and the city of Cleveland for alleged violations of the Fourth Amendment. The district court dismissed the suit, concluding that neither the officers nor the city did anything wrong, we affirm. One summer night in 2016, House was walking home from a convenience store. Along the way, House says an unidentified Cleveland police officer approached and asked whether he had any weapons. House said no. The John Doe officer then patted him down and searched his pockets. After finding no contraband, the officer told House that he could leave. When House got home, he began climbing the steps on his front porch. The parties dispute what happened next. Now I'm going to note, this summary here is written 
to be very favorable to the police. But when you're actually dealing with a motion to dismiss in this type of scenario, you're supposed to take the well-pled factual allegations as true. That's what the court is required to do. So going out of their way to shade the facts, to be nice to the police, doesn't fucking matter. The point is, what was in the complaint, assuming it was adequately alleged, is presumed to have happened when you're dealing with a motion to dismiss. You wait for discovery to get all the rest of that stuff, but of course, qualified immunity exists to protect police from discovery because we don't want their skeletons tumbling out of the closet. Uh, the court continues. As House tells it, several men, two of whom he later identified as officers Thomas Hodis and Brian Midoff, pulled up in an unmarked car. So we have an unmarked police vehicle. Midoff asked House if he lived at the house. House replied that he did. Midoff asked House if he was sure that he lived there. House said something like, yes, what the fuck, in response. That prompted Midoff to comment that House had a smart mouth and a bad attitude. Midoff then got out of the car, walked toward the porch, and asked House a third time if he was sure that he lived there. Again, House responded, yes. Things escalated from there. Midoff told House to put his hands behind his back and that he was going to jail. House disobeyed Midoff's command to put his hands behind his back. Instead, House yelled that he hadn't done anything wrong and that he lived at the house. Midoff ran onto the porch grabbed House, who at the point was screaming at the top of his lungs, and threw him down. When Midoff was on top of him, House realized that Midoff was a police officer. Midoff, with help from Hodis, then tried to handcuff House, but House, in his own words, was resisting arrest by screaming and stiffening up his body. House says he never tried to hit, push, or fight with the officers, and he claims that he didn't do anything that would be considered offensive to the officers. So let me make sure that we're clear on where we are. You have an unmarked police vehicle, an officer who's in plain clothes, trespassing onto someone's property to go onto his porch to place him under arrest for a smart mouth. That is the gist of this case. The court continues. At this point, House's mother, who owned the house, showed up. She had heard some commotion and rushed to the front porch. When she arrived, she saw a chaotic scene. A man in dark clothing straddled House, and another man struck House with a closed fist, which caused House's head to strike the porch. She asked the men, who she later realized were police officers, to stop beating her son. She kept explaining that he lived at the house with her. After things settled down, the officers put House in a police car and took him to jail. The officers tell a different story. That night, Hodis and Midoff, along with a third officer, were patrolling the area where House lived, an area known for violence, drugs, and gang activity. Notice the setup here. This is a naturally violent area, therefore everyone in it must be committing crimes. Uh, while driving in an unmarked vehicle, again, they're conceding that this is not a marked police car, uh, the, they saw House lingering suspiciously on the front porch, the front porch of the house he happened to live in, by the way. Uh, house looked nervous when he saw the unmarked vehicle, as I would if I had someone rolling by my house staring at me. Uh, Midoff thought the house was vacant because it appeared to be boarded up and there were bars on the doors, which people in poor neighborhoods tend to have so they can stop people from breaking in. Based on his training and experience, holy shit, that's a direct quote. Uh, Midoff suspected that House might be engaged in criminal activity. So Midoff asked House whether he lived there. House said he did. Midoff wanted to investigate more, so he got out of the car, walked toward House, and asked him if he was trying to break in. Midoff doesn't remember exactly what House said in response, but he does remember that House said fuck along with some other words. Hodis, for what it's worth, recalls House saying fuck you and leave me the fuck alone. When Midoff reached the front porch, House clenched his fists and squared up into a fighting stance. Again, unmarked car plainclothes police officer if this were me i would assume i'm about to get robbed so goddamn i'm gonna square up too if i don't draw my weapon 
Midoff, afraid that House wanted to fight, told House to put his hands in the air. Again, not the right approach when you haven't identified yourself as police. You say, I'm a police officer, and then all of a sudden things might, you know, settle down. House ignored that instruction and instead motioned towards his pockets, which prompted Midoff to grab House's arm. Hodus joined Midoff and tried to restrain House, who was grabbing at the officers and flailing around. House struck Hodus in the chest. House also tried to rip off Midoff's flashlight and handcuff case. So Midoff used a leg sweep to take House to the ground. Now bear in mind, think about how this is going here. They're already talking about the fact you got multiple officers who are trying to restrain him, and they're only just now putting him on the ground while this happens. Basically, this entire recitation of events confirms in my mind that the officers were full of shit, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so leg sweep has happened. Guy's now down on the ground. Court continues, quote, even while on the ground, House resisted the officers by burying his hands underneath his chest. The officers eventually handcuffed him and put him in a police vehicle. It wasn't until House's mother showed up, the officers claimed that they found out House did in fact live at the house. So each officer charged this guy with assault on an officer. So he had three separate charges for assault. But of course, the state later dismissed everything because he wasn't doing anything wrong on the porch of his own fucking house. Uh, so the court continues, quote, Instead, we must examine the particular situation that Hodus and Midoff confronted and ask whether the law clearly established that their conduct was unlawful. To answer this question, we must ask whether every reasonable officer would know that law enforcement cannot tackle someone who disobeyed an order and then use additional force if they resist being handcuffed. Importantly, this question asks about the lawfulness of conduct under the Fourth Amendment. And in that context, the Supreme Court has stressed, subquote, the need to identify a case where an officer acting under similar circumstances was found to have violated the Fourth Amendment. Without such a case, the plaintiff will almost always lose. Because the alleged unlawfulness of the officer's conduct wasn't clearly established, the officers are entitled to qualified immunity. So it goes on from there. It is a bullshit opinion. We will have a link for it in the show notes for you to read. Uh, but basically, because of that qualified immunity finding, they dismissed the 1983 claim the House filed. They dismissed the malicious prosecution claim he had filed. And they dismissed the assault and battery claim that he had filed. This is yet another reminder to abolish qualified immunity. Uh, no research for federal stuff in state-by-state state criminal justice fuckery. I'm going to forewarn you now, a lot of these stories relate to prisons and the raging coronavirus in a number of prisons and how people who are there for nonviolent crimes or jail haven't even been convicted yet are going to die because of state inaction trying to get them out of the fucking jails as you have this pandemic spreading around. Uh, but we'll start in Alabama. And in Alabama, the headline for the story kind of tells you what you need to know. The headline says, quote, Alabama prison system's COVID-19 plan anticipates widespread infections, deaths, and National Guard intervention. Holy shit. This is their plan, by the way. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Alabama's prisons are underprepared to prevent and manage the spread of COVID-19, prompting a worst-case scenario plan that could call on the National Guard to work in the prisons should the virus take hold in the system, according to an internal Department of Corrections document obtained by AL.com. The 263-page planning document states that the physical design of Alabama's prisons, severe overcrowding, and understaffing combine to make it impossible to follow recommended protocols for keeping prisoners and employees 
from contracting the coronavirus. In the worst case scenario outlined in the plan, system-wide shortfalls could result in widespread infection, the need for military intervention, and nearly 200 inmate deaths. And the plan shows that the department anticipates that it may need to spend more than $2 million on supplies to respond to the pandemic, including personal protective equipment, medication, and body bags. Uh, There's more to the story there. We'll give you the link. Just know how we treat inmates in this country is an abomination. It doesn't matter if they've been convicted or not. We still treat them like shit, and I don't think that's appropriate under the Constitution. But more importantly, this is going to hurt the jailers, too. There's no magic protection for a jailer to save themselves from an infectious disease if it's running rampant among the inmates. Jailers are going to get sick and die as well. You would think the Blue Lives Matter crowd would care about that, but apparently not. Uh, Over in Colorado, in El Paso County, we've got a case of uh, police traumatizing a 10-year-old. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, A Fort Carson family wants to share their story with others after their 10-year-old son was arrested and charged with felony menacing, a Class 5 felony, which has now been expunged. Uh, So, quote, They came back over, told me my rights, and told me what was going to happen. They put handcuffs on me, and I got into the car, 10-year-old Gavin Carpenter said. Fox 21 exclusively interviewed the 10-year-old. He said that he and a friend were playing outside with toys near North Powers Boulevard and Constitution Avenue. They were playing a version of the video game Fortnite. Now, I I don't know Fortnite. I've not played it, but uh, hopefully that has some meaning to those of you who are listening. Uh, Subquote, the toy bow was an orange Nerf bow. It didn't work. Nothing could shoot out of it. Nothing would come out of it. Uh, The weapon, the toy I had, had an orange tip. It was also broken. It couldn't shoot anything out of it, Gavin said. Gavin stated they pretended to shoot at about five to ten cars until one man stopped. He said he and his friend ran to his friend's grandparents' house. The man called the police. According to the Carpenter family, El Paso County Sheriff's deputies arrived and arrested both Gavin and his friend. He was handcuffed and taken to the Colorado Springs Police Department for mugshots and fingerprinting. Gavin's parents followed the cars to the police station. They said that night Gavin wasn't released until 10.30 p.m. EPSO released this statement when asked about the arrest. Quote, if anyone is dissatisfied with the actions of any employee, they have administrative avenues available to them. We encourage citizens to take advantage of those avenues. Fuck you. You would think someone would have the sense to realize that kids firing, and I'm putting that in air quotes, you can't see it, but kids firing orange-tipped weapons at cars is not a fucking crime. Uh, so that's Colorado. In Illinois, I think we got a couple Illinois cases here. Yeah, we, oh no, we just got one. For some reason, I thought there was more. We just got one from Illinois today. Uh, but this is the first rule of Fisk, Judge's Edition. As a reminder, the first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, in this case, apparently, it is judges that are doing that. From that story, it says, quote, A Cook County Circuit Court judge has now been reassigned to administrative duty after security video shows her putting a young girl into a holding cell and leaving the child there. From several different camera angles, Judge Jackie Portman Brown is seen dragging a little girl into an empty holding cell behind her courtroom. Still wearing her black robe, surveillance video shows Portman Brown leave the cell while what appears to be a sheriff's deputy locks it up. The incident took place last week at the Leighton Criminal Court building, commonly known as 26th and Cal. 
Quote, the child had no business being at 26th and Cal to begin with, let alone in a courtroom and in a lockup where a judge is taking her into that lockup, said Richard Kling, a professor at Chicago Kent College of Law at Illinois Institute of Technology. The legal community is outraged, especially since holding cells at the Layton Criminal Court building are known to be extremely unsanitary from inmates waiting for court. Questions remain over who the girl is or why she was locked up. On Wednesday, Chief Judge Timothy Evans reassigned Portman Brown to administrative duty, pending a March 4th meeting of Cook County Circuit Court's Executive Committee. The sheriff deputies involved have been de-deputized, pending an internal investigation. Uh, over in Indiana, Indianapolis, we <laughs> God, that this is where I'm getting confused. I thought there were two uh, Illinois cases. No, there are two first rule judges edition cases. Uh, and this one is wild. If you've not seen the video, click the link because it's this is basket case crazy. Uh, a man facing felony charges in connection with the May 1st, 2019 shooting involving three Clark County judges is asserting self-defense. Brandon Kaiser was one of two men involved with a fight outside of downtown White Castle during which shots were fired and Judge Brad Jacobs and Judge Andrew Adams of Clark County were struck. Court documents show attorneys have submitted a notice of affirmative defense claiming Kaiser was justified in using reasonable force against another person to protect himself. Court documents show that attorneys for Kaiser are also claiming the defendant used reasonable force to protect himself because he was attacked by two men with military training. Still images from security cameras have been submitted as evidence, and Kaiser's attorneys described what they claim took place during the altercation in the court documents. In Exhibit A, Kaiser is attempting to enter the White Castle by pulling on the locked door when Judge Adams and Judge Jacobs approach him in a hostile manner. In Exhibit B, Kaiser said he was slammed onto the concrete multiple times, his face shoved into the concrete repeatedly, he was choked multiple times, and he was beaten by the two judges. Exhibit C, Kaiser was kicked in the head by Judge Adams while being held down by Judge Jacobs. Exhibit D, Kaiser repeatedly tried to escape Judge Jacobs' hold as Judge Sabrina Bell twice attempted to get Judge Jacobs off of Kaiser. Kaiser faces four counts of felony aggravated battery, two counts of felony battery with a deadly weapon, two counts of felony battery resulting in moderate bodily injury, two counts of misdemeanor battery resulting in bodily injury, two counts of misdemeanor battery, one count of misdemeanor carrying a handgun without a license, and one count of misdemeanor disorderly conduct. Judge Adams pleaded guilty in September to misdemeanor battery resulting in bodily injury and was charged with three counts of misconduct. Judge Sabrina Bell and Judge Bradley Jacobs reached charged with two counts of misconduct. You really need to go click the link to look at the pictures because holy shit. I don't know what happened leading up to that. Maybe there were some words exchanged, but it really does look like judges just randomly beat the fuck out of this guy for sport, and it's incredibly disturbing. Uh, in Louisiana... The floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. Now, this one I know we've got multiple stories for. Um, where do we start? So let's start with public defenders because that's a statewide case. The public defender's offices are running out of money because they are mostly funded by traffic tickets, and fewer traffic tickets are being issued because more people are staying home because of the coronavirus. Like, it's just this entire story is fucking bonkers. So this is from Riley Balco in the Washington Post. He says, quote, the moment he heard about the first coronavirus case in New Orleans, Derwin Button knew he had to realign his priorities. So, quote, I told my staff, y'all, this is going to get bad, he says. Button is the district defender for Orleans Parish or the chief public defender for the city of New Orleans. 
After that first case, Button's primary objective would be to depopulate the city's jail, which could quickly become a viral time bomb. Over the past month, the number of people in jail in New Orleans has dropped from 1,100 to 820, thanks largely to the efforts of Button's staff. Uh, but even as Button's offices work to free people from the jail, arrests for low-level crimes have continued. The Louisiana Supreme Court has canceled jury trials in the state, but New Orleans courts are still holding hearings via teleconference. Button mentions one recent client who was arrested and spent a night in jail on a three-year-old trespassing charge. Subquote, because of the statute of limitations, it wasn't even prosecutable, he says. We had another client arrested for possession of a single oxycodone tablet, another for failure to return a rental car on time. We need to be limiting law enforcement's interactions to serious crimes only for the safety of everybody. Quote, the number of inmates testing positive at the jail in New Orleans jumped from 2 on Friday to 15 on Monday. As of Monday, 29 jail employees had tested positive, as well as 10 employees of the jail's health care contractor. There have been other outbreaks at detention facilities all over the state, including five deaths at a federal prison. We're going to get that to, to that one in a moment. Uh, but even as they tried to depopulate the jails and continue to represent their clients through all of this, Louisiana's public defenders face uncertainty about their own job security. While the state's prosecutors are funded with appropriations from the state legislature and from parish budgets, public defenders aren't considered state employees. Instead, a fine added to traffic tickets fund about two-thirds of public defense statewide. Button says about 30% of his New Orleans office budget comes from tickets, but other public defender offices in the state rely almost entirely on them. It's a bizarre way to fund legal defense for the poor. The salaries of public defenders are dependent on people being found guilty of crimes, some of whom may be their own clients. The situation grew more absurd a few years ago when several prosecutors in the state began paying police officers to offer motorists a diversion program. Motorists cited for an infraction could either accept a conventional ticket or they could avoid the ticket simply by writing a check to the local district attorney's office. The latter option prevents the infraction from showing up on a person's driving record, and that program helped prosecutors divert a significant source of funding from the public defender offices to pad their own budgets. Thanks to the novel coronavirus, traffic ticket revenue has all but evaporated. The stay-at-home order from the governor's office naturally means fewer people are driving, which means a significant decline in the number of traffic tickets. Police across the state have also been instructed to stop pulling people over for minor offenses, a policy button and other public defenders support, but one that essentially vaporizes that source of funding. Uh, so there's a lot more in Radley's column. It's very good. But basically, most of the public defenders in Louisiana are now looking at you know insolvency. They're going to be bankrupt. They're furloughing the lawyers, and they're laying off nearly all of their staff. So it is a fucking nightmare. Now, I'm going to say I helped on a case in Louisiana many, 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 many years ago. I think it was around 2014 or 15. Lots of felonies. I think we had like 27 felonies in all. Got them all dismissed. Turned out well. Um, but doing that was a nightmare in itself and that was as private counsel trying to help someone out i can't imagine what it's like having a public defender holy shit it is nuts uh so there's that all right so let's go over to oakdale louisiana and i've got two different articles on the same topic uh so i've got a few bullets from one quotes from another and then we got another one in new orleans as well uh but basically in oakdale you have more inmates dying from the coronavirus as of now than any other federal prison in the entire country. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, The ACLU sued the Federal Bureau of Prisons on Monday, 
arguing that efforts to release inmates from a detention center in Oakdale, Louisiana, where five men have died from the coronavirus, are moving too slowly. The low-security prison, located 100 miles outside of Baton Rouge, has become the epicenter of the viral pandemic in the nation's federal prison system since the first inmate in U.S. custody died there last month. As of Sunday, 22 current inmates had tested positive for the virus, the most confirmed cases out of all 122 federal prisons. Inmates named in the ACLU's class action lawsuit described having no access to hot water and soap and a row of six showers shared by 125 people. One inmate, a 35-year-old with compromised lungs due to childhood asthma, said that he sleeps in a room that holds 72 prisoners in such close proximity that he can touch his neighbors while lying in his own bed. And there's more to the story there. We'll give you a link. The separate article is about the first person to die from that, a guy named Patrick Jones. From that story, it says, quote, In the months before the coronavirus infiltrated the United States, a 49-year-old inmate began drafting a letter inside the walls of a federal prison in Louisiana. The man, Patrick Jones, had been locked up nearly 13 years on a nonviolent drug charge. He hadn't seen his youngest son, then 16, since the boy was a toddler. Jones was arrested in 2007 after cops found 19 grams of crack and 21 grams of powder cocaine inside the apartment he shared with his wife in Temple, Texas. His wife testified against him and was spared a prison sentence. Jones wasn't so fortunate. He was ultimately ordered to spend 27 years behind bars. He was now writing the judge in the hope of receiving a sentence reduction through the newly signed First Step Act, which offered relief to some inmates convicted of nonviolent drug crimes. The judge denied that request on February 26th. 22 days later, Patrick Estelle Jones was dead, the first federal inmate to die of the coronavirus disease. He had contracted COVID-19 at the low-security prison in Oakdale, Louisiana, a penitentiary now dealing with the deadliest outbreak of any of the 122 federal facilities. Rest in peace to that guy. You know, it's fucked up that a nonviolent drug charge can carry the death penalty in America, but here we are. Uh, and in New Orleans, where we were sort of there briefly dealing with uh, Radley's column, but I want to emphasize again the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice that is the entire state of Louisiana. Uh, it says, quote, Nearly a decade after allegations first arose that he hid evidence concerning whether a jailhouse informant expected a reward for testifying at a murder trial, the Louisiana Supreme Court has dismissed a misconduct allegation against a former New Orleans prosecutor. But the high court's long-delayed decision this month to spare the ex-prosecutor any sanction drew a strongly worded dissent from Chief Justice Burnett Johnson, who painted it as the state's latest failure to hold rogue prosecutors accountable. At issue were the actions of UC Phillips, a former Orleans Parish assistant district attorney who's now a defense lawyer, before the 2010 trial of a man accused in the killing near the former Fisher housing development in Algiers. Prosecutors said Jamal Tucker shot 25-year-old David Sisolak Jr. in the head as Sisolak tried to buy drugs from him on Hero Boulevard in January of 2008. At Tucker's murder trial, Phillips called to the stand another inmate who claimed that Tucker had confessed to the killing. Now, there's a lot of dense explanation here, but a few things to note from the story. Uh, after the guy testified, that inmate got a prison transfer the elected DA actually called a neighboring DA to reduce his charges by 10 years. Then a letter came out that was sent before the testimony took place where the prosecutor guaranteed that transfer in exchange for the testimony, and the DA noted on the charge reduction that he mentioned the phone call to this other DA. 
And then the judge subpoenaed the elected DA to testify at an appellate hearing, but the DA offered to retroactively reduce the charge to manslaughter so that he wouldn't have to testify at all. Like This is just an effort to violate Brady, Brady versus Maryland, the requirement to disclose exculpatory information, and then trying to duck having to talk about it after the fact. It's all, it's all fucked up. Uh, story continues, quote, In 2012, defense attorney Ben Cohen filed an ethics complaint against Phillips with the State Office of Disciplinary Counsel. The Office of Disciplinary Counsel brought formal ethics charges against Phillips in May of 2019, so seven years later. In October, a Louisiana Attorney Disciplinary Board hearing committee issued a recommendation that the charges be dismissed. The Louisiana Supreme Court then has the final say on those recommendations from the disciplinary board, including the ability to send cases back for more consideration in an unsigned order. They didn't even have the testicles to actually sign what they're doing. The justices on February 18th tossed out the charges. In her written dissent, Johnson said that while the court frequently imposes discipline for wayward attorneys who mishandle client funds, sanctions for errant prosecutors are rare. Subquote, yet the actual injury caused by prosecutorial misconduct is much greater. A loss of a liberty interest is undoubtedly more valuable than financial loss, she said. If we have trepidation about disciplining prosecutors whose deliberate misconduct sends people to jail, we have abdicated our responsibility. Uh, the uh, spokesman for the DA praised the Supreme Court decision. He said, quote, it is worth noting that even after this information was provided and this defendant was extended the opportunity for a second trial, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter instead, admitting that he shot someone in the head, said Ken Daly, an office spokesman. No shit. He's going to take the plea so he can get out, even if he didn't actually do it. So anyhow, that is Louisiana, three stories from there. Well, four stories, technically two on the same subject. Uh, out of New Mexico in Albuquerque, we have the third rule of Fisk, that there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. From there, it says, quote, at least one Albuquerque police department officer shot and fatally injured a man after being called, Jesus, after being called to conduct a welfare check in a house east of downtown on Monday afternoon. The man was taken to a hospital where he died. Police have not publicly identified him. APD Deputy Chief Harold Medina said that around 1.15 p.m., officers were sent to the 900 block of Edith Southeast near Broadway and Cole because an employer was concerned about an employee and wanted to see if he was okay. Subquote, they made contact with the individual, Medina said in a media briefing at the scene. At this time, an altercation occurred between the officers and the individual, at which time at least one APD officer did discharge their firearm. Medina said the shooting occurred inside the house and other civilians were there at the time. He said he did not know whether the man was armed with a gun or any other weapon. He didn't provide any other information about the altercation. Medina said two officers were on the call, although he did not know whether both fired their weapons. He said they are both on paid administrative leave, which is standard. So even in a pandemic, police are still good at killing people. Someone says, hey, go do a welfare check. Police said challenge accepted, blew him away, and they now get paid vacation. Uh, in New York, in New York City, the NYPD is just getting slammed with coronavirus infections. And it's not funny, but at the same time, this is a fucking obvious outcome when you have people continuing to make arrests like normal as there is a pandemic all over the fucking place. From that story, it says, quote, On Monday, April 6th, 2020, 6,974 uniformed members of the NYPD were on the department's sick report, which accounts for 19.3% of the uniformed workforce. 1,935 uniformed members and 293 civilian members of the NYPD have tested positive for the coronavirus. 
the number of infected and sick has steadily climbed. On March 27th, only 4,111 uniformed employees were on the sick report, and 442 members had tested positive for the coronavirus. A number of members in the department have died. The latest to be announced is Auxiliary Police Officer Raymond Roman. Roman is the father of an NYPD officer as well. He was a 10-year member of the department. Yet, members of the NYPD continue to patrol the streets despite their reduced numbers. They, they put that in there like it's a brave thing, but really all you're doing is risking these people's lives. You're going to get them sick. More of them are going to die because you're busy trying to enforce, you know, piddly shit. I guarantee you the number of murders have not climbed that much to justify full-blown NYPD presence. The number of burglaries has not gone up that much to justify full-blown NYPD presence. Most of this is just going to be run-of-the-mill harassment of normal taxpayers. And okay, fine, I get it. That's the life we live in. But you're now doing it against a backdrop of people potentially getting a, uh, you know, pandemic here, getting a disease that has no treatment, has no vaccine, and you're deciding that that you know baseline harassment of citizens is worth their health which is not the trade-off i personally would make but i don't live in new york so there you go uh, also new york city the uh, jail on rikers island and keep in mind many people there haven't even been convicted yet they're just awaiting trial has become a breeding ground for the virus with lots of their inmates getting sick and some people dying uh, from that story, it says, quote, the first city inmate to die from coronavirus was brought to Rikers Island for a nonviolent technical parole violation three days before he was rushed to Bellevue Hospital and a day before hearings at the jail's judicial center shut down because a parole officer tested positive for COVID-19. The New York Daily News has learned Michael Tyson, 53, was transferred from the Vernon C. Bain Center to Rikers for a March 23rd hearing on the technical parole violation he was facing, according to documents obtained by the news. He was then transferred to the Eric M. Taylor Center the same day. On March 24th, the Judicial Center, where those accused of parole violations go before a judge who determines whether to free them or keep them locked up, closed after a senior parole officer contracted coronavirus, two sources told the news. By March 26th, Tyson was taken to Bellevue, where he died on Sunday. The city's Department of Corrections first confirmed Tyson's death, subquote, a detainee who tested positive for COVID-19 passed away today in Bellevue Hospital. Our deepest condolences go out to the detainee's family and their time of grief. As of Monday, 286 people in city custody and 333 correction department staffers have tested positive for coronavirus. The Legal Aid Society and the New York Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit Friday demanding the release of 100 people on parole warrants from city jails, including Tyson. They sued for his release on Friday. By Sunday, he was dead. It's fucking outrageous. Uh, so in North Carolina, more of the same. This is yet another story about the prison system. And here, it is the prison that happens to be right next to where I live. Uh, Butner Federal Prison is a hot-ass mess. From that story, it says, quote, The number of people at the Federal Correctional Complex in Butner who have tested positive for the coronavirus surged dramatically over the weekend, the director of Granville and Vance County's Public Health Department said Monday. Now, I have to do a disclaimer. I have been getting information about this situation from folks at one of the local hospitals. Because again, I've mentioned I do represent doctors on occasion. I'm not a doctor myself, but I am medicine adjacent. And I happen to know a lot of people who work at certain hospitals nearby. Not going to name names, you can guess. Uh, but I first got tipped off that something was amiss at Butner a few days ago. 
and the local newspaper, the Raleigh News and Observer, Dan Kane, is on it. There will probably be more developments out by the time we do the podcast for Monday. We're going to record it on Easter. Uh, so in the next four days, you will see new things there because it's it's fucking yikes level. Uh, but just have to put that disclaimer out there that you know I'm I'm aware of some of this stuff and may or may not be slightly involved on the tangents of it in getting that information out to the public. Uh, story continues. Public health director Lisa Macon Harrison said 59 people have tested positive at the complex, nearly five times what the Federal Bureau of Prisons reported over the weekend. On Monday evening, the Bureau of Prisons reported most of the new cases, listing 54 inmates and one staff member as testing positive. So, quote, we certainly have an outbreak situation in Butner's prison, and I think they are doing a really good job of testing everyone right now, which is why those numbers are going to go up a great deal, Harrison said. Anthony DiPietro, a New York-based attorney with clients at Butner, said he is concerned about the situation there. He says his clients include cancer survivors and people with pre-existing health conditions, including heart disease and hypertension. So, quote, their sentences have been converted to death penalties because they just happen to be prisoners during this outbreak, DiPietro said in a phone interview over the weekend. Their lives matter. They have families as well. This is not what we envision American prisons to be like. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there. And take a slight issue with that statement. You know, I, I don't know what people envision American prisons to be like. If you work in defense, we know what prisons are like. It's a fucking abomination. So I, I don't know what your average run-of-the-mill American thinks. My assumption is they probably think it's abomination as well. And they probably think that's a good thing when it's not. Um, but I just want to take a, a quibble with that small part of the statement. DiPietro also called for more transparency from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Good luck with that. Uh, before the update, the Bureau's website continued to report that as of 5 p.m. Monday, just 11 inmates and one staff member had tested positive. Efforts to reach the Bureau of Prisons by phone and email and Butner prison officials by phone have been unsuccessful. So basically, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is lying to the public, just FYI. Uh, last story in the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery out of Rhode Island in Warren. One of Rhode Island's longest-running cases of a municipality paying a worker a full salary to stay home is now over. The NBC10 investigations team has learned. Michael Clancy, 62, officially retired two weeks ago, ending 22 years of legal wrangling and a limbo-type status that allowed the Warren police detective to receive his full pay and benefits but never come to work. Clancy suffered a staph infection in 1998. According to court filings, he hasn't been to work since. The state's retirement board denied him an accidental disability, skeptical as to whether his injuries were work-related. He believed they were. Rhode Island law is vague on what cities and towns can do next. So many mayors, town managers, and administrators take cases to court but ultimately end up paying under law. The one-time detective most recently collected approximately $114,000 in salary and benefits. Over the years, he's been eligible for raises and clothing allowances, too. Clancy retired on February 10th, according to the town, with an ordinary state-issued pension. By union contract, the now former detective is also eligible to collect $79,650 in unused sick and vacation time, according to town records. So because of a staff infection in 1998... He has not had to work for 22 years. He's gotten 114 grand a year in salary and benefits. He's now getting a pension of roughly 80,000. Uh, no, sorry, he's getting a regular pension. We don't know the terms yet. He's getting a bonus payment of 80,000 on unused sick leave. Holy shit. I wish I could make that kind of money for 22 years of doing nothing. That, that is mind-boggling. 
But again, working for big government means never having to say you're sorry. Uh, all right, folks, so that does it for this half of the episode of Fiscamol. We are going to have a separate pod that I'm about to hear record shortly covering politicians' pandemic powers. So rather than continuing to listen to this one, make sure you download that one and listen to it and share it with your friends. And we will be back on Monday. We're slated to record an episode on Easter. So I will record that and it should be in your uh, phones Monday morning. So on behalf of myself, Mike the Sound Guy, who's working remotely, God bless all of you. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, stay healthy, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.